Now, some of you have been cooped up all for about two or three days, and you're just you're just letting it out this morning. It's just uh, amazing just to hear all of uh, all of the chit chat going on. Thank you so much uh, for being here this morning. Well, good morning, C4, and it's just good to see all of you who have who have made it out. And for those who are going to be joining us a little bit later online, uh, a welcome to you, uh, depending on what time uh, of the week you join us. This morning, we're going to continue our series in the Book of John that Pastor John has been taking us through. I don't know if you find that confusing in your connect group. In our connect group, we find it confusing all the time. Well, John said, and which John was it? You know, it's really, really tough for us. But we we muddle through. But this morning, we're going to continue on in the book of John that Pastor John has been leading us through. Last week, um, we were in chapter 8 of John. And uh, we engaged in what I think was just a riveting story about the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And if you weren't here last week, you need to listen to Pastor John Thompson's message on that because it, it was just a profound and, and uh, just a profound message I found and just with so much in there that I think it needs a second listen to or even a third listen to. Throughout chapter 8, Jesus has been involved in ministry in and around the temple in Jerusalem, and that's where we find him. And in John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus said this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And as we come this morning to chapter 9 of John... We will get to see the significance of this statement that Jesus made in John chapter 8. When Jesus declares that he is the light of the world, this actually gets played out now in John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is one complete story, and we're going to go through the entire chapter this morning. We're going to try and race along through that. But, but it's one complete story that, that is taken in response to this statement that Jesus says that he is the light of the world. Miracles in the book of John are always signs and they are always pointers to deep spiritual truths. Every time you see Jesus do a miracle in the book of John, there's a deep spiritual truth behind it. The miracle in and of themselves are wonderful things, but they point to something else. They point to something even more significant than the miracle itself. And we have to keep that in mind this morning as we look at John chapter 9. So I want to invite you to turn in, in a paper Bible or navigate if you're using one of these or watch on the screens. As we walk through this morning, John chapter 9, and we see this six recorded miracle of Jesus pointing to something supernaturally significant that I believe will impact every person who's sitting in this room this morning. Here's where I want to go with this message. Just so I'm really upfront about it right at the start, because I think the passage in John chapter 9 demands that we go here. So let me just, let me just give it to you in a nutshell, because if you're the kind of person who's going to go, you know what, I, I, I'm not going to engage, I'm going to tune out partway through. I want you to hear right up front where I'm driving at with this particular message, and where I think the scripture takes us so that we can be absolutely abundantly clear about it. Here's what I believe this is about. Jesus healed the man born blind to show that the light of the world has come to set us free from our prisons of spiritual blindness. Jesus, the light of the world, 
has come and he does this miracle and John records this miracle for us so that each one of us would know with complete certainty sitting here this morning that Jesus has come to set us free from our prisons of spiritual blindness. John records this miracle so that we can see how this blind man responds to Jesus and that man is an encouragement to me and an encouragement to you on how to respond to the message of Jesus and the scripture this morning. Jesus is the light of the world. And here's why I think John recorded this story for us. The first reason why I think he recorded it is is so that we could understand the purpose of the light. In John's gospel, you have a bit of a problem. It's, it's not really a problem. It's really a stylistic difference. What John does is he often compresses time. So sometimes it's kind of hard to follow chronologically what's happening in the book of John because he just doesn't pay attention to time, uh, you know, in sort of the, in the normal way. He just compresses it oftentimes. So we don't really know how long after the temple activities this story takes place. But we know that it's after the woman caught in adultery scene and Jesus continues to teach and he's opposed in his teaching and he makes a statement about being the light of the world. Sometime after that, we have this particular encounter. Verse 1 says this, As he went along, Jesus that is, he saw a man blind from birth. As Jesus and his disciples walk along, notice that it is Jesus who notices the man. You know, it would have been very, very easy for Jesus just to walk right on past this man. After all, in that day and age, um, there were lots of people who were suffering, lots of beggars, lots of blind people, lots of lame people. And it could have been easy for Jesus, exhausted from ministry in the temple, to just walk right on past this person. Much the same way that you and I find it very easy to walk by panhandlers and buskers in the city streets. But I think we need to be encouraged that Jesus notices this particular human being. He notices this man. There's something about the plight of this man. There's something in this man that the Lord himself stops and takes note of him. I think for me and for you, there's a great reminder and a strong urging to never get used to human suffering in our own city or around the world because Jesus notices. As the disciples see Jesus paying attention to this particular man, they they question Jesus. In verses 2 and 3, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. You know, when I first read this, I thought, man, that's kind of cruel of the disciples. Like, Jesus and the disciples are there, and here's a guy who's been born blind, and he's either sitting or he's standing begging, and the disciples, you know, right there with the guy there go, so who's the sinner, him or his parents? Like, doesn't it seem kind of insensitive, you know, to ask that question in front of the guy? But what we need to understand here is that in the day when Jesus lived, this was a common topic. In fact, it was a belief that was actually being debated amongst the Pharisees and the religious rulers of the day. One of the rabbis, one of the ancient rabbis, even before Jesus' time, said this, there is no death without sin and there is no suffering without iniquity. So who sinned? 
It's the question of the day. It's the questions that the disciples asked of the Lord. Who sinned? Was it this man's sin that caused him to be born blind? Or was it his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind? Jesus says, neither. He says, neither. And I love what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying here that not all Sickness, that not all suffering is a result of personal sin. Can I repeat that? Because I think some of you need to really hear that this morning. Jesus is saying that not all sickness and suffering is a result of personal sin. We have sin in our world, yes, and when the fall happened, when when our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God, as one teacher I heard said this way, we pulled the roof in on ourselves and the pieces of the roof fall indiscriminately on individuals. Yes, that happens. But what Jesus is making very clear here to the disciples is, it's not because of personal sin that this man was born blind. It's so that the work of God can be done in his life and that God can be glorified in and through this man. Jesus sets up now what's about to happen in the rest of the whole chapter. In verses 4 and 5, he says this, as long as, it's, as long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work, and while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. It's very interesting as I, as I read that. Jesus says, you know, there's a time that, that a man can do work, and that time is during the day. But when nighttime comes, we, we're just no, no longer able to work. And what Jesus is saying here, so the disciples get it, is there's this time and there's a season when ministry and the work of the kingdom of God can be done. But there is a time coming when everything's going to be all over, and there will be no more opportunity to work in the kingdom of God. At first reading, I was surprised by the use of the term in verse 4, where Jesus says, we and we must. They're very, very strong terms in the original Greek language. They're very emphatic in nature. They're they're, they're the strongest that Jesus can possibly say. He says, we must do the work of the Father. See, I thought it would have said, I must do the work of the Father. But Jesus includes the disciples and, by extension, includes us his followers. There's a strong urging here. There's a strong imperative to you and to me that says, we, we C4 Church, we must do the work that the Father has assigned for us to do. It's what Jesus tells his disciples here. In the face of human suffering, in the face of tremendous need in our community and in our world, we must be about the Father's work, extending bringing forth the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, while he is still in the world, Jesus is the light of the world. But does that then mean that when Jesus left this earth, when he ascended back onto the Father, that the light of the world is now gone? No, of course not. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, when he was talking to his disciples? He said, you are the light of the world. And he went on to say in Matthew chapter 4 that... um, that we are to let our light so shine before people that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We are the light of the world, and our job is to minister to the needs of people in Jesus' name. 
Well, Jesus now turns back to the man. He's had an aside with his disciples, and he's expressed to them the importance of ministry and the fact that he is the light of the world and that they are to be involved in that work as as the light who would carry on his ministry once he was gone. But now Jesus turns back his attention to the man that he had noticed at the beginning of the chapter. Verses 6 and 7, it says, Having said this, he spit on the ground made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which the word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. Jesus did many miracles in different ways. And I think the reason that Jesus used a lot of variety in miracles is because, because if he only used one method, we'd major on the method. But Jesus used many different methods so that we actually wouldn't get caught up in the methodology, but we'd actually get caught up in the reason for the miracles. In this particular miracle, Jesus takes some dust from the ground and he spits in it. And I'm imagining in his hands or on the ground, Jesus is taking his own saliva and he's taking this dust and he's mixing it into mud. Now, why did Jesus do this? I don't know. We'd have to ask him. Maybe perhaps Jesus is trying to point to something, a creative work that he's going to be doing here, hearkening back to the time, you know, in time gone by in Genesis when Jesus created mankind out of the dust of the earth. Because this man has never seen before. This man's eyes have never functioned before. And maybe what Jesus is doing is he's pointing to the fact that he's about to do a creative supernatural work again in this man's life like he did when he created Adam. I don't know. That's my guess. And John doesn't tell us. But remember the important thing about the miracles is not the methodology. The important thing to remember about the miracles in John is that they point to significant spiritual truths. I notice that the miracle is actually initiated by Jesus. Like, isn't that wonderful? This man doesn't cry out like so many others do in the gospel accounts. This man doesn't call Jesus over and say, Oh, Jesus, Jesus, I, I, I've heard about you. Could, could you do something for me? It's actually Jesus who, in the first place, notices the man. And having noticed the man, he doesn't just leave it at that. He actually initiates the ministry to the man. Again, great lessons for us as a church and as individuals So I imagine the Lord Jesus taking this mud now that he's mixed and holding the man's head in his hands and with his thumbs, I imagine the Lord Jesus pushing this mud into the eyes of this man. And then Jesus tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And John gives us this little, this little parenthesis, and it's really good that he does that because anytime John the Apostle mentions a place or a name, you should really take note of it. It's worth your digging around and investigating because he always does it with good reason. And John tells us that that place, the pool, means sent. And being sent is a huge theme throughout the book of John. Jesus was sent into the world by the Father Jesus is now sending us into the world as he has sent these first disciples. And he's, he's showing this pattern of being sent out to do something, to do ministry. And now he sends this man to the pool of Siloam to receive physical sight. Can you imagine how this man felt after washing his eyes? 
Like, this is not a guy who gets his sight restored. This is a guy who's never seen before. Like, I can, I can imagine this guy, you know, he washes his eyes, and, 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 and it's the mud, you know, he clears it out, he clears it out gingerly and tentatively. He begins to open his eyes, and suddenly light, for the first time, floods into this guy's eyes. Can you imagine how that must have felt? And, and can you imagine him now as he starts to look around? Because these are things that he's only heard before. He's never seen these things before. He hears voices. He hears horses. He hears birds. You know, I mean, some of the things he could have felt before and maybe had an image in his mind. But, but how do you feel the sky? How do you feel birds in flight? For the first time in his life, he sees and, and, and he hears maybe voices that he recognizes, and he goes, oh, wow, that's what Josh McCabe looks like. Oh, I thought he was really tall. <laughs> but that's what he looks like. Oh, wow. Imagine the surprise of this guy who sees for the first time. Well, the guy starts uh, on his way home, and immediately there's a reaction to this healing. Look at verses 8 through 12. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they demanded. He replied, the man that they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. His friends and his neighbors are divided. They're divided on his identity. They, they can't believe it. They, they, they see him maybe coming from a distance, and they're like, but, but that looks like the guy. Doesn't even have a name. That looks like Bill, but, but he's not using a cane. He's not stumbling around. He's not, he's not begging anymore. He looks like he can see. And so they're confused. They, they don't know what's going on until the man himself says, yeah, it like it really is me. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of a little bit, actually, I'm a little ticked at their response, to be honest with you. So what do they do? They say, well, who did this? How did he do it? Where is the guy? And, and I find some humor in the passage because the guy's like, well, I don't know. I never saw him before. Like, really? So here's the question that I have and why I get ticked. Where's the celebration? Where's the party? Like, where's the feast? Where's his parents? You know, one of the things that I love about C4 Church, I really do, I love this about our church, is when we have baptisms here, we always say at every baptism, when the person goes down under the water and when they come up out, because we're so, celebra- we're so excited about it, that we give them a standing ovation. And many of you, like, really get into it. And it's awesome to see you get into it. But you know what I think we should do? I really do. I think we need to start up a new program in church. We need some party people in C4. When someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, we should throw a church-wide party. Right? Yeah, I'm serious, and I'm really serious about this. I'm, I'm not just playing around this. I think it is so significant, it is so wonderful, it is so incredible that someone who has never met Jesus suddenly meets Jesus, and we golf clap. 
No, we should celebrate. We should celebrate like no one else celebrates. Because somebody who is formerly going to hell has met Jesus, has been set free and forgiven, and their eternal destiny is secure in Christ, and it'll change the rest of their life and those around them. And we, the church, need to party hardy on that stuff. So I need five volunteers. I think to do it right, we need about 100 grand. Because there's going to be a lot of people coming to Jesus. And talk to me afterwards if you meet either of those two criteria. I would love to talk to you. But in this miracle, we begin to see John's point. Jesus is the light of the world who has come into the world to help people see. But not just physically. There's more. The second reason that I think John records this for us is so that we can anticipate the cost of responding to the light. The overjoyed man who has just received his sight for the first time in his life is about to find out that not everyone is as excited as he is at this particular moment in time. Verses 13 and 14. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Boom. There's the bomb. John has excluded it up till now, but now he drops a huge S-bomb. Sabbath. What else could I mean? People. He drops the Sabbath bomb on them. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day who have been opposing Jesus and his ministry and trying to find fault in every single thing that Jesus does, they pick up on this. And this now will add tremendous fuel to the fire. Look at verses 15 to 17. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. The man's healing poses an enormous problem for the Pharisees. It causes them actually to be divided because here's what, what they're caught with. Here's what they have to wrestle through. Here's what they can't agree on. If, if Jesus is not from God because he broke the Sabbath, then how on earth could he do a miracle like this? And so some said, this guy can't be from God. This man, Jesus, he absolutely cannot be from God because if he was from God, then he wouldn't break our understanding and our interpretation of the Sabbath. And others said, okay, yeah, like we see that and we agree with that, but a man born blind? (laughs) Like how many of us have done that? How many people do you know who've done that? How could somebody do that if they weren't actually from God? 
And so they turn back to the man and they say, well, you know, it's your eyes, so you tell us. What do you think he is? Which is really interesting because here's this likely uneducated man because he was born blind, so he would have never received an education. And Jesus tells us, the scripture tells us he was a beggar. So this is an uneducated individual, and he's in front of these Pharisees, these lawgivers, these, these guys who are experts in, in the Jewish law and in the scriptures, and they say to him, well, why don't you explain it? <laughs> And, and the guy says, look, I, I don't know. I, I'm just telling you what he did. But here's, here's what I would guess. I, I, I say he's a prophet. Now, this doesn't mean that the man is downplaying Jesus at all because the man doesn't even know Jesus. Earlier on, it said the man that they call Jesus, the one they, they call, the one whose name is Jesus. The man is saying, I don't have any personal interaction with him other than the guy came to me, put some mud in, in my eyes, told me to go wash, and when I washed, I was able to see. So I think he's a prophet. And this is a very natural reaction. You'll remember in John chapter 3 with the Samaritan woman at the well, she had exactly the same reaction when Jesus told her about what was going on in her life. She says, oh, I see, I see that you're a prophet. It was them giving Jesus the highest place that they could give other than giving him lordship and messiahship. Verse 18, the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. The Pharisees hate the thought that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they do what anybody would do, what you and I would do if we were in their situation. They say, okay, look, this is not working. So why don't we just try and discredit the miracle? Maybe the miracle's actually a fakie. And so they bring in the man's parents. And they say to him in verse 19, is this your son, they asked? Is this the one that you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? They come to the parents and they just ask the parents three questions. They say, okay, number one, is this guy your son? Number two, was he born blind? And number three, how did he receive his sight? Now, it seems to me that the third question negates the first two because they really don't care about the first two. You know, it's really only the third one that they care about. And we see the parents respond in verses 20 to 23. We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know that he was born blind. But how he can now see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That is why the parents said, he is of age Ask him. So the parents come along and they say, question number one, is he our son? No brainer, yes. Question number two, was he born blind? No brainer, yes, he was born blind. Question number three, uh, why don't you ask him? They throw the kid under the bus. Well, not the kid, the man. They throw him under the bus. And John adds why they throw him under the bus because they at this point in time are not willing to pay the cost of following Jesus. They are not willing to pay the cost of following Jesus. There would be a great cost if they were put out of the synagogue. Put out literally means excommunicated. It would be like grabbing someone in here this morning and saying, you, come up here right now. Ask you some questions. Don't like your answers. Get out of C4. Don't ever come back again. 
It's a public humiliation. It's public shame. And it would cost them. It would cost them socially. Their friends would not be allowed to hang out with them anymore. It would cost them financially. They would not be able to do business with people in the church anymore. It, it would cost them religiously. They wouldn't be able to come to church anymore. And it would cost them ethnically. Their family would have to shun them. And that's why they throw their son under the bus. Because they're not willing to pay the cost For me, this is one of the saddest parts in this whole story. This is the parents of a man born blind who has now received his sight. It was as a parent, as I put myself in that position, I think, I don't think I would have cared what anybody thought at that particular time. I think I would have been overjoyed. I think I would have been rejoicing. I would have said to the Pharisees, you want an appointment? Call me in a month because we're having a huge party at our house. You're welcome to come. But our son was born blind and he suffered and we suffered through all of his childhood and up into his adulthood. And we see him every day there on the street begging to eke out a living. And now He has been set free, and he can see. And you ask us questions? Take a number. We're too busy to talk to you. And the other thing that makes me so incredibly sad about this is there is no glory given to God. There's no glory given to God. These are people of faith. Who opens the eyes of a person born blind? Only God has that power, and yet these people in front of the religious leaders, motivated by fear, are unwilling to give God the glory that he so rightly deserves in this circumstance. We move on in the story in verse 24. So a second time they summoned, the religious leaders that is, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. So the man's brought in a second time before these religious leaders. And now the Pharisees really begin to flex their religious muscles. They're not playing games any longer. Now the big guns are out. They say to him, give glory to God. See, for us as Westerners, and in the English, this just doesn't, this doesn't panic us at all. We don't, we don't get nervous about hearing something like this. Let me tell you what the history of this term is. What they're doing is they're actually invoking an oath with the man. It'd be similar to us saying, okay, now we're going to get serious. We've questioned you once before. We've had no luck with your parents. So here we go. Take the Bible, put your hand on the Bible, and swear after us that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But it's actually even more sinister than that. What they are actually doing at this point, excuse me, They're quoting from the Old Testament. They're quoting from what Pastor Josh has been preaching on for a couple of weeks over at the 905 venue. They're quoting from Joshua chapter 7 and verse 19. When a man called Achan had stolen some things and taken some things from the battle at Jericho that he was never supposed to have taken, and he hid them for his own personal gain. And as a result of hiding those things for his own personal gain, all of Israel is judged, and they go out to the next battle, which should be like a nothing, no-brainer, warm-up battle, and they get horribly defeated. And when God points the finger to Achan and to his family, Joshua comes to Achan, and the words that he says to him is, you have been found out, now give glory to God. In other words, tell the truth 
before you die. And that's what these guys do to this guy. That's what these religious leaders do to this poor man who has been blind all his life and has been been pushed aside by society, someone that these religious leaders never would have taken an interest in before, and now they pull him before them just because he can actually finally see, and they flex their huge spiritual muscles in his face, and they try to intimidate him. But the man is not going to play their game In verse 25, he says, he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, Jesus, I don't know. And then seven unbelievable words. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. The man cuts through all of the religious rhetoric. He cuts through all of the power play and all of the the manipulation that is going on, and he summarizes his position in these seven words. I was blind, but now I see. What the man is saying is, you know what? When Jesus touches your life, you know it. (laughs) I don't don't care if I can't explain it. I don't even really care that I don't really know who this guy is. You guys don't even use his name. You just call him this fellow, this guy. And all I know is once I was blind, and now I can see. I wonder how many of us would repeat that sentence this morning. If we're going to be brutally honest before God, I once was blank, but now I blank. For some, maybe you could say, I once was a drunk, but now I'm sober. I once was selfish, but now I give. I once was a cursor, but now I'm a worshiper. I once was oppressed, but now I'm free. See, when Jesus really touches your life, you know it. You know it, and no one can talk you out of it. Verse 26, then they asked him, what did he do to you, and how did he open your eyes? So the Pharisees kind of switch gears a little bit, and they take a different approach, and what they try to do is they try to question Jesus' methodology. The man answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. (laughs) Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Ooh, he's getting a little bold. He's getting a little feisty now. He can see. He can take him now. They don't look as bad to him anymore. See, he's already told them, and now he turns the tables on them. This uneducated guy really is asking, is there a question behind your question? (laughs) Do you really want to become his followers too? It's interesting, the word too. And and, And the Pharisees pick up in the word too, They understand that he said that he's interested in becoming a follower. So in verses 28 and 29, then they hurled insults at him and they said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. It's interesting. They pick up on the two. And they accuse this guy now, the blind man, the former blind man, of being a disciple. And they say to him, look, this fellow... We won't even use his name in here. This fellow, we we don't even know where he comes from. And I I love the blind man, the former blind man, because his, his, his answer is really quite profound. Verses 30 to 33. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The man's boldness is really, really growing now. And his answer here is clear and profound. The NIV translates it, now that is remarkable. We'd say today, this is wild. This is wild. This is unbelievable. Are you kidding me? Is what the man says to them. He says, okay, so let me just get this straight. You guys are the guys with the education. You guys are the ruling elite. You have all the power and authority. I am a simple beggar, uneducated. Let me tell you how I see it. God doesn't work through evil people. God only works through people who do his will. Healing a guy born blind is an epic miracle. It's not your average garden variety run-of-the-mill miracle. It's an epic miracle. And that's what this guy did to me. So you can't figure out if he's from God, eh? That's what the guy's saying to them here. He's like, come on, seriously. A blind guy could see it, it's so clear. That's what he's saying to them. That's how clear it is. Now we see the full cost of responding to the light. Verse 34. To this they replied, the religious leaders, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they throw him out. The first thing that they do is they insult him. Don't miss this. You were steeped in sin at birth. You want to know why you were born blind? It's your personal sin. It's your own fault that you suffered all those years. That's exactly what they're saying to him. It's your fault that you were born blind. And after insulting him, they say, so now we excommunicate you. Get out of the church. Don't ever come back. You bear the cost of upsetting the system. Every one of us here this morning should know that it will always cost you to follow Jesus. It will always cost you, whether you are a seeker who is searching for Jesus and you are thinking of becoming a follower of Jesus, I want to tell you, it will cost you And for those of you who are Christ followers this morning, it should still be costing you to follow Jesus. There is a cost to responding to the light. Well, then very quickly, the last, the third reason that I think John recorded this story for us is that he wants us to make a decision about the light. In the final seven short verses, we see the full contrast between the man born blind and the Pharisees. Verse 35 says, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? I think it's awesome that actually when Jesus hears, he actually goes to the guy. The Lord is not indifferent about the suffering of his people. When he hears, he finds the man. And Jesus asks this man the most important question that any human being can ever be asked. Do you believe in the Son of Man? That's what John's whole book is about. That's what this whole letter that we're studying is about. These things are written so that you might believe. 
In verse 36, the man says, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. The man asks for more information. The man's not playing some game here. He's actually asking for clarity and for more information. See, this man is saying, I am seeking, and I am ready to believe. I just don't know enough yet. I wonder if he recognizes Jesus' voice. Verse 37 and 38, Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus confirms his identity as Messiah, and the man responds immediately just the way he responded to receiving his physical sight. He now responds and gains spiritual sight. Obedience, immediate obedience. But not everybody responds favorably. Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Judgment is not the purpose of Jesus' first coming. We know that from John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But what Jesus is saying here is, judgment is the inevitable consequence of being exposed to the light and rejecting him. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. If the, if the Pharisees claimed no knowledge of spiritual things and had not seen Jesus, they would be blind and not sinning against the light. But they claim to have knowledge, and they have seen Jesus, and they have seen and investigated the miracle that he has done, and still they don't believe. So Jesus said, you stand condemned. Friends, there is no middle ground with Jesus. There's no middle ground with Jesus. All of us here today and those of you who have been watching and listening online have been exposed to Jesus, the light of the world. Not just through the preaching, but the reading of his word and through the worship time that we've had and through the prayers that were offered. You've been exposed to Jesus, the light of the world. And I am sure that many are feeling and sensing the Spirit's work in their life this morning. The question is, what do you do with Jesus? That's the question. What do you do with Jesus? There are two groups that I just want to talk very quickly to. The first one is this. Those of you who would call yourselves seekers, those who are investigating Christianity or investigating faith, who've heard maybe li- like this man very little about Jesus, but, but, but you're, you're genuinely seeking. You're like this man. You can say, I, I am a seeker. I do want to believe. I just need more info. I believe that this morning, as the word of God has gone out, that the spirit of God is speaking to you. And that today is the day of salvation. Look, you don't have to have it all figured out. But what this man points you and me to is simple childlike faith and obedience based on what you do know. If that's you this morning, I want to pray for you, and then I want to pray along with you. 
And so let me pray for you now, and then I'm going to invite you to join me in a prayer, and then I would invite you to respond to that. But please hear me very carefully and very clearly. Like this man, it will cost you to come to Jesus. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to offer you something that's not the real deal. Coming to Jesus always costs you something. I don't know what it is. But you gain his presence, his power, his forgiveness, eternal life. But it will still cost you. So Lord, I pray for those who are wrestling this morning, like really honestly wrestling supernaturally. I pray, Jesus, that their eyes would be open to you. I pray that in this spiritual realm, they would be able to see very clearly the Son of God, the one who wants to touch them, and that they would respond favorably to you, a loving Savior, this morning. And so if that's you, just I would invite you to pray this by repeating it after me. There's no magic in the prayer. It's just an expression of what you're going through. Lord Jesus Christ, I know I'm like the man born blind. I want to see. So now I invite you to forgive me of all of my wrongdoing, all of my past mistakes, all of my blunders all of my sin. I receive your forgiveness. I ask for your love and your joy and your peace to flood my heart and my life. And whatever the cost may be for me personally, I ask for your presence and your strength to carry me through that. In your name. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer, and honestly, you meant that, come and talk to one of the pastors after the service, because we need to get some information into your hands, and we need to help you get started on that journey. But I want to speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, too. I found this quote by Charles Spurgeon that really challenged me during the week. Charles Spurgeon said this, It is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, but our strength. It's not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. As we look to the Lord here at C4 for a move of revival in our church and in this region... Are you more like the blind man or the Pharisees? It will cost you. It will cost me. If we are desperate for Jesus to come and to do a new work in our own lives and to do a work in this church, it will cost us, friends. But that is the purpose for which he came. But it means decision. Individually, and it means decision corporately. 
It will cost us individually and corporately our reputation. It will cost us humility. It will cost us grace. It will cost us offering and receiving forgiveness. It will cost us our possessions. It will cost us our money. And the list goes on and on and on. But the question is, how badly do you want to see? How badly do you want to see? So, Lord Jesus, I pray now for myself and for my Christian brothers and sisters in this place. And I pray for C4 Church, the church of Christ here that we love. And we simply ask, Jesus, that you would continue to show us what it is personally and corporately that we need to set aside so that we can see more clearly. We don't want to be a bunch of blind people leading other blind people. We want to see Jesus clearly. So come and have your way amongst us and do whatever it takes in our lives, Jesus, and in our church. And we ask this for your glory and your glory alone. Amen. 